Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Super Tuesday delivered a supersized win for Donald Trump and a superb night for Hillary Clinton. The mass politics profs join us to discuss those wins and Mitt Romney on fire and a not-so-respectable Republican debate. Later in the show, professional seamstress Emily Engel liked Bernie Sanders so much, she's crafted his likeness into a doll. She'll tell us all about Little Bernie. But first, here with me in studio are the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien, chair and associate professor of political science at UMass Boston. Hi, Aaron. Hey there. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Peter Ubatasia, <laughs> associate professor of political science and the director of the Martin Institute for Law and Society at Stonehill College. Hello, Peter. Hi, Callie. And new to our table, Shannon Jenkins, chair and associate professor of political science at UMass Dartmouth. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, it's good. We're glad to have you. On the phone, Gerald Duque. Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Hello, Western Mass Mass Poly Prof. Checking in. (laughs) Well, good. We're happy to have you um, from so far away. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, I think we have to start with um, the very recent Republican (laughs) debate, which I let me just set the table this way. So I prepared to watch it, as I'm sure all of you did, and I expected sort of more of the same, but I don't think I expected more of the same. It just devolved, Erin. You know, we're all professors and we all teach political science because we have a love of politics and think it matters and think, you know, debating policy positions matter. And it's it's hard to teach right now because it is so abhorrent. The standards of discourse are so low. They're making penis jokes, literally. And so like the analysis that, um, you know, they're acting like children, children act better. Children are kind to one another when you're prompted to be kind. So I think it, it it is difficult to watch because the presidency matters and uh, whoever wins this contest will have major implications for everyone watching. So to see that sort of carnival act go on, Saturday Night Live can't do that justice. Saturday Night Live wouldn't present that six months ago because it would seem so outlandish and we're there. So before um, Peter, Gerald and uh, Shannon, you weigh in, let's take a listen to the particularly offensive clip um, at um, Thursday night's debate. I have to say this. He hit my hands. Nobody has ever hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? (laughs) And he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. That, of course, was Donald Trump, who is the front runner, Peter, (laughs) uh, in this contest. It's the most demeaning 
thing I've seen in modern American politics and in the context of, of debates or forums. You know, there, modern debates are, are not really what we what we think of classically. They're, they're hard charging. You get a few seconds. They're full of quips. Uh, there's a lot of put-downs, but I've never seen anything like this. And to call it childish, I agree with Eric completely, is an insult to children. Most uh, school children who have debates in their schools about uh, the presidential election or lots of kids in Massachusetts had debates this week about who they might vote for uh, would never – most of them would never even think to talk like that and certainly wouldn't be allowed to talk like that. And uh, our children are, are held to a higher standard and exhibit better behavior than what we saw. And I, I, it's depressing. It's upsetting. It's hard to inspire uh, students uh, to get into politics when, when we all witness that kind of thing. But I also think that it means – uh, many folks, particularly those in Massachusetts, where we are, who have decided to endorse Donald Trump and get behind him, really have some explaining to do because they are aiding and abetting the most demeaning uh, political campaign in modern American history. Shannon, one guy, there were many tweets last night, but one guy tweeted, my party is committing suicide on national television. Yeah, you know, I was listening to NPR on the way in, and it, it was listening to people weigh in about can I can I can I vote for this person if he becomes the eventual nominee? And I think talking about childish action is a good way to think about it because having conversations with people who support Trump, you know, you can say, all right, you can justify away this guy's actions. But what if your own child did that? What if your own child made fun of someone with disabilities or made some fun of a woman because of her appearance? You'd be mortified. So if you're mortified if your own children do that, how can you accept that? And having conversations with Trump supporters, I've, I've, I've seen when you talk about his behavior, they get defensive. But when you put his behavior in the context of other people, they all of a sudden say, huh, you're right about that. So it's, it's a, I think it's a, a, an important way to think about that because – we need to. We can't justify this, Peter said. But I think, Gerald, I don't know that so many people who support him are justifying it as that they see it almost as separate. That what they what they take away from all of this is this is a guy who's very strong and not afraid to say what he has to say. Did you get that as well as the kind of vulgarity? I think that's absolutely right. I think that uh, his supporters are able to disassociate his behavior because he is playing a game on their behalf. And uh, he is winning the game because he's not playing by the rules. That's the key. You have to keep in mind that everyone repeats this over and over ad nauseum. He plays by his own set of rules. That's part of the attraction, right? It's part of the anti-establishment shtick. So they they really, you know, they're, they're willing to, to forego that. I actually think he's very much a culture class warrior, and that's why he's drawing in sort of an ideologically diverse crew, but not a culturally diverse crew. Hmm. Well, I'm wondering because the numbers were smaller on the stage, and so therefore he had more time to speak that we don't know what the response will be in polls coming up. I'll be interested to find out. But I did want to point out one thing, uh, another thing from the Thursday night debate, and that was they were in Detroit. Now, Detroit is a a depressed city. It has a lot of issues. But they were a stone's throw from Flint, Michigan, which has been on the front pages of every newspaper, online, everywhere, on the lips of everyone, uh, because it's just such a tragedy of people are not thinking, can't remember, uh, 
the folks in the government there switched the water supply, and now we have emails for one going back one year to let us know that they all knew that it was damaging and that it was hurtful to the community, and they just let it go because they were afraid of the cost, which if they had put in what they needed to put in to filter the water properly, it would have been about $100 a day. And now we have people who are damaged by lead, and it's going to cost millions and millions and millions to correct this. And God knows um, what happens to these children who have been uh, permanently damaged. One question, Mm -hmm. and I want to play this, and this is Marco Rubio was asked the question. He answered it. Uh, I didn't hear anyone else respond to it. They sort of pivoted to something else. But this is Marco Rubio's response. And by the way, the politicizing of it, I think, is unfair because I don't think that someone woke up one morning and said, let's figure out how to poison the water system to hurt someone. But accountability is important. I will say I give the governor credit. He took responsibility for what happened. And he's talked about people being held accountable and the need to change this, Governor Snyder. But here's the point. This should not be a partisan issue. Um, If he were higher up in the polls and looked like he was going to be a real contender to win this, that will be in an ad because Governor Snyder is on the email thread and has acknowledged he knew this was wrong. Peter? Well, I think, you know, Rubio uh, wants and needs uh, Snyder supporters. Uh, He needs hardcore conservatives who propelled people like uh, Snyder into office, Uh, which is why not only in that uh, exchange where he was, you know, defending Snyder in some ways are, are um, uh, praising his handling of this crisis, which was astounding. Um, uh, they kept going after Trump for his non-conservative you know, ideology, which has proven not to matter at all uh, in this race. And so I think that was part of that strategy to kind of peg Trump as a non-conservative, as, as too flexible, as in some cases liberal on, on a number of issues in the hopes that they can rally conservative Tea Party supporters to their cause for, for these upcoming primaries. Um, Gerald, wondering how you heard it. I was frankly annoyed by the moderators who did not immediately follow up and say, come on, mm. there's an email trail here. They were pretty good the rest of the time with other tough issues. I thought that was obviously a pandering to a Republican governor. I agree completely. I, I had the exact same reaction to it as you did, Callie. Uh, but it just speaks to the idea that uh, everybody on that stage has figured out that Trump's success formula has something to do with projecting an attitude and projecting a, um, uh, a social identity. In other words, his supporters are just not they're not ideologues and they're not obviously they're not policy wonks. And so it's really entirely attitudinal. That's and and frankly, the moderators, although you're right, I think there was some tough questioning, although it might have just been because they felt that they had been besmirched by Trump earlier in you know the previous debates. But I think uh, it's definitely true that there was there was no no attempt at substance because they were playing to the audience both in the in the theater and at home. Uh, Aaron, you want to weigh in? I think what um, Gerald said there at the end for me, it was listening to the crowd in that clip. Mm. They went wild. And I think in part what when um, most Americans, not all, but when most Americans think of Flint, they don't think of poor white people. They think of poor black people. Mm. And a big part we know as political scientists uh, of um, Trump's rise is highest amongst Republicans who have uh, scored very, very high on racial resentment and fears of white nationalism. The idea that, you know, um, that they're that in air quotes, uh, they're taking our jobs, those pronouns being very purposeful. So for Marco Rubio to say this isn't a partisan issue 
false. What he's trying to do is take race off, right? It, it's a wink. It's a dog whistle. I know that term gets overused, but it's accurate on this to say that uh, we Republicans didn't do anything on purpose because of race. We Republicans didn't do anything on voter access on purpose because of race. The crowd ate it up because they no longer had to feel bad that it's poor black kids that are being affected in Flint. But what's interesting about this, Shannon, is that one of the uh, early on uh, parents who were out in front is a white woman mm-hmm. and her two kids. And those two kids have been tested and found to be damaged by this lead water. So I find that really fascinating. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I lived in Michigan for uh, about four years before I came here. And uh, I, top to bottom, my representation in national and state government was about as conservative as you can get. We used to joke we went from Dave Camp, who's now chair <laughs> of the House Budget Committee, to Barney Frank. Mm-hmm. All right? um, and so there's a real <laughs> urban-rural divide in the state of Michigan, and, and not even urban-rural. It's urban versus everything else, mm-hmm. the suburbs, what have you. And and that's where the Republican support is. They're not getting votes in Flint. They're not getting votes in Detroit. So they don't care. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just right. don't care. And it's unfortunate sometimes it seems top to bottom in our politics today. It's about winning. It's not about doing the right thing. I mean, this is an issue where there's a clear right thing to do, right? I mean, there's there's no gray area here. There's no maybe we should or maybe we, yes, you need to help right. these people. Um, yet we don't see both sides lining up, and that's just really frustrating because it's it's about winning now. Yeah, it definitely is. It's so it seems. All right, um, Mitt Romney. I'm going to come back to this debate little bit, but just want to go forward with this. Mitt Romney, hours before Thursday's debate, came forward and did a big, huge speech in which he warned everyone, but Republicans in particular, you can't let Donald Trump be the nominee. Let's hear a little bit of what uh, Mitt said in his speech. He's playing the members of the American public for suckers. He gets a free ride to the White House, and all we get is a lousy hat. His domestic policies would lead to recession. His foreign policies would make America and the world less safe. He has neither the temperament nor the judgment to be president. Uh, Shannon, did that make any difference? I don't think so. I mean, I think the people who uh, support Trump see Mitt Romney as like the embodiment of the problem. He is the establishment. He is, you know, he is the the thing that they dislike. I would hope that it would have some effect, but, um, you know, I'm not particularly hopeful. I think that Trump supporters don't care. All those things that he that Romney said was wrong about Trump are the things that Trump voters admire about him. Maybe there'll be some movement and support for the other candidates to consolidate around someone else. But I don't think it hurts Trump's support among his core voters at all. I wondered, Aaron, if the fact that the one thing that I thought he should have put in his speech, if you're going to do it, mm-hmm. you need he needed to have addressed, I went to him for his right. support and answer that. In, right. but, and now I've seen the light somehow. Mm-hmm. I, and he didn't. So to me, that undercut. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it undercut. And I think you provided the perfect answer. I got to know this guy and boy, was I wrong. And guess what? That guy, Trump, came just as hard in favor of me. So we both screwed up. Right. And then and then you move on to the next. So I did think that undercut. But I actually I disagree with Shannon a little bit in the sense that 
Um, I 100 percent agree it's not moving any Trump voters. It's just not. But I think what Mitt Romney is trying to do is to get anybody who's considering Trump and is a true red Republican to say, don't go with this guy. Go with anybody else or even stay home. Um, so as, as if the speech aimed to change mind of Trump voters, which I don't think it did, it's not going to. But if it's aimed at, you know, lifelong Republicans who might be don't want to abandon the party, but don't want to see Trump, it, it, it's an attempt to coalesce and name all the problems about Trump from a conservative standpoint. And so I thought it was effective in that way. But I think you're right. The fact that he never owned up to that, like, you know, press conference. And keep in mind, one of some of the most effective ads that uh, Obama and Axelrod ran against uh, Mitt Romney was with the Trump plane in the background. That's so it's true. sort of fascinating that, <laughs> you know, something that was so problematic in the general election for Mitt and now you know, what's his face? Trump is the guy. So it could have been done a little bit better, but I give him I give him high marks for doing it. Kudos for doing it. The Fox crowd and the MSNBC crowd came out pretty hard after him. And so, you know, I would have liked to see it earlier, but I'm glad it happened. Um, Gerald, I think folks are now, um, if they paid attention to this in the way, because he w- it was so frank, it was very frank, except for this this part that we were discussing about his not acknowledging his own, um, right. seeking his endorsement. Mm-hmm. You know, do you support the guy because he could, looks like he could win and, right. you know, get to the White House? Or do you just say, all my better instincts, um, as as Romney has outlined here, are, this is just not, this should not be who's representing us. But if you got somebody who looks like he might win, well, do, I, I don't know. I, I wondered if the Romney conversation actually cut the other way. <laughs> What do you think? Well, it, I agree with your with your analysis on everybody's analysis on this so far. I will say this though: um, I, I agree entirely that his already committed uh, supporters are going to put their fingers in their ears and 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 actually they'll be very pleased to hear that this is actually helping Trump. Uh, you know, it, it, one of the interesting things about politics today is everybody, every voter, is also a pundit. Uh, in, in other words, voters actually are looking at politics in a strategic way rather than in how does it affect my interests often. Because obviously, you know, this is a, a, a candidate whose actual policies are not actually going to be in the best interest of the folks who are aligning around him. But yet they see him as their team leader. But I will say this about the, uh, you know, the idea that, oh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. The key to uh, going against a guy who has very repetitive, very consistent patter like Trump is to have a very clear and consistent message in the, against him every day. In other words, if a, a prominent Republican did the same thing as Mitt did every day for the next two weeks, I am quite confident that that would have a, a, a negative effect on Trump's uh, progress because he he relies on his ability to respond right but if you do the same you ignore his response and do it again just like he does hmm. and and so it's about consistent repetitive and in this case clear indictment that's my guest Gerald Duquette he's associate professor at Central Connecticut State University well I asked that question um, Peter, because of what happened at the end of Thursday night's debate. So let me go back to that, and let's just take a listen to this question and answer. 
Yes or I'll no? I'll support Donald if he's a Republican nominee, and let me tell you why. Because the Democrats have two people left in the race. One of them is a socialist. Yes, because I gave my word that I would. And, and what I have endeavored to do every day in the Senate is do what I said I would do. If he ends up as the nominee, sometimes he makes it a little bit hard, but, uh, you know, I, I will support whoever is the Republican nominee for president. So that's Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and um, John Kasich saying after they've, you know, tried to eat him up alive all through the whole debate, yes, I'll support if he's the nominee. <laughs> sure. I, I'm particularly taken with what uh, Kasich said at the end there. Sometimes he makes yeah. it a little bit hard. And you compare that with, with what Romney uh, has said about him. He, he doesn't make it a little bit hard. He should for any real conservative Republican uh, who cares about his or her party and the country mm-hmm. should make it impossible to imagine that you could endorse a man of Trump's character. And um, I think you, you, the, the, the whole argument that they made collapses. Now, in, in fairness to many politicians, mm-hmm. uh, it is such an unfair... Now, in this instance, I'm going to make an exception. It is normally such an unfair question. You're on stage <laughs> right. with right. all of your opponents and you say, will you agree to endorse the nominee? Of course, of course I will. I believe I will be the nominee. Well, what if Aaron's the nominee? Will you endorse her? <laughs> yes, I will endorse her if she's the nominee. I still believe I will be the I think it's such a, yeah. it's such a, a silly question in many ways. Right. But Trump has, has demonstrated that he is, is, is so vile. Uh, you know, he's, he's noxious, he's racist, he's misogynistic, uh, he insults, it's a temper tantrum all the time, that I do think at some point, like Romney, you, you have to draw a line and say that's just not a place we're willing to go. And I think Romney's strategy, and I think he's to be commended for, for, for doing it, um, uh, is really important for what happens once Trump wins the nomination because I think he's probably still on track to winning it. There are some strategies in play that might deny him it at the convention, uh, which I think would just be, if it couldn't be, more of a disaster for the Republican Party. But it'd be so fun right? for I know, us. I know, it would be wonderful yeah. to see. But I think, what, I think there's going to be a post-Trump movement because if Trump's the nominee, uh, for example, Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire is is in such jeopardy of winning re-election, right? So there's got to be a movement within the party to help save some of these other folks. And so it's fascinating to me because I have never, I'm not aware of any other uh, nominee uh, from a political party who um, would be so frank in, in, their, in their opposition to uh, his party's you know, presumptive nominee, as Mitt Romney was. Right. It really helps to provide some space for the Romneys, for Charlie Baker, who also came out and said he couldn't support uh, Trump, but for people like Kelly Ayotte, who are going to need every bit of life-saving they can get if Donald Trump's the nominee of her party. That's my guest, P- Peter Ubertasio, associate professor at Stonehill College, one of the mass politics profs who are gathered around the table to uh debrief, de- de- deconstruct all that's going on <laughs> in politics these days. Erin, you wrote a note while Peter was speaking. <laughs> oh, I was just, you know, to, to answer, I agree with Peter that it's a bit unfair to ask that question, but it's also, as he said, this guy so exceeds the norms. Um, Donald Trump fails the character test, he fails the policy test, and he fails the American test in terms of bringing folks together, actually trying to govern for all of America. He's a unifier, he said. Well, you know, and that's just, you know, if you say it, it's true. If you say it, it's true. I mean, this is is something, you know, it's not unique in political history, but it's certainly unique in modern political history. So the, the answer to that question that all three of them eviscerated Trump during the debate and then fell back on that position that they went Christie light 
<laughs> in this right, sort of response. Right. And that that speaks to a character flaw in the Republican Party. It, the history is going to look very poorly on those kind of responses. And I know it, it sounds grand in my responses, but, you know, I, I, I'm someone who sort of lets politics simmer. It, you know, these things move on. This is different. And this is different in ways that Republican candidates need to say this is unacceptable. That's my guest, Erin O'Brien, associate professor at UMass Boston and chair political science. Um, Shannon, we mentioned, and, and we should go back, Peter mentioned actually, the non-endorsement of <laughs> of our governor, Charlie Baker, who uh, said it before the, our, the Massachusetts primary, reiterated it, and got a little irritated about being asked about it, <laughs> as a matter of fact, after the primary. Um he seems not to be one that would be affected by this negatively, but how are you seeing it? Well, you know, it's interesting. I wrote a note well, while we were talking to Jared. Jared's actually right. You have that this has to be repeated over and over and over again. But who's going to do it? Yeah. Mitt Romney did it. Who's next? Right? right? No one's Charlie seen. Baker. He doesn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. He said, I'm not going to endorse him, but that's it. He didn't get out in front and give the sort of speech that Mitt Romney did. Who's going to stand up to him? Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan? None of these people have shown any willingness to say this has to stop. They are. They are afraid of them. Paul Ryan stepped up when the KKK kerfuffle happened. Uh, right. For like, say, for like, say for that like, back. for like 20 <laughs> seconds, he stepped up and then he stepped back in line. Right. Yeah, I mean, he, was, he really went out on a limb there. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> the, most, the most effective spokesman would be a celebrity like Clint Eastwood. Mm. Right. That, that, but who's going to step up? No one in the party. I can't right. imagine Clint Eastwood or anybody who's, yeah. you know, given their, not their lives, but their, you know, sort of political support to the party for so long. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be a total yeah. jerk, but the only thing that would work is that, that Reagan could come back. Yeah. If Reagan could, <laughs> it, it, you know, right. but it needs to be repeated and maybe multiple voices. Uh, other Absolutely. popular governors. Um, what's uh, the, the, yeah, governor the governor in South Carolina. That's right. Nikki Haley. Yeah, Nikki, yes, thank Nikki you. Nikki Haley. Haley. Yeah. There, but, it, you know, Gerald just drove that repeat point. And I think we all want to jump on that because it needs yep, to yep. be said. There needs to be a chorus that counteracts Trump and the amount of attention Trump gets. The, the minutes in that debate, he got tw- almost tw- twice as much time as John Kasich. But the problem and the is thing people... that none of these folks have done is they haven't played the electability card. They haven't said, we, like uh, Senator Graham did, uh, we will lose. He will get creamed by Hillary Clinton. If that is part of a daily drumbeat, that will actually register because these folks are, they, they hate Hillary more than they love him. Um, Gerald Duquette, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. Shannon, you want to respond to well, that? You know, I was just going to say, though, you, I don't think party leaders are forceful enough. Yeah, Paul Ryan came right. out for about 20 right. seconds and said it. Nikki Haley came out for about 20 seconds. Mitt Romney's the only one who's been willing to go over the line and stand out there and stay there. Everyone right. else takes these little tiny shots, and that's not enough. It's not enough. But even Mitt didn't go the didn't say he would lose. Right. But and I don't, and I don't think I, I don't himself. I don't. Yeah. Yes, I don't. I don't believe I'm not. I don't know you guys. You're the political scientist looking <laughs> at the data. I have been told by you many times appropriately. My little anecdotal stuff. What does it mean? <laughs> but I'm just saying right now, my anecdotal stuff does not say to me that Trump would lose to Hillary Clinton. Who wants to take that? Uh, Trump will lose. Gerald, <laughs> I don't know about that. Let me let me answer this in a Trump-like way. Hey, believe me. Hey, I'm a political scientist. You know, I got lots of political science. He's got big uh, words. Believe me when I say she will lose. <laughs> All right, Gerald. I guess you made that was very clever, by the way. Uh, Peter, you want to take on Gerald's comment? 
Well, I, I, I do. I mean, I think uh, regardless of the nominees, the Democrats have an edge in national elections still, right? And so I think, I think, I think the reason, in part, that you see a lot of Republicans holding back um, is because they are they are still self interested, and there's right. there's precious little courage in politics when your reelection is on the line, and they don't know which way he's going to play, and they don't know if he's going to be a hindrance to their own reelection to their own prospects. And so I suspect once they start to see that he can hurt them, then they will find the courage to come out and say, we can't support this person because uh, it will be, uh, you know, it, it's like 1984 or, or 1972 <laughs> when, when, when the nominees, right? Now, I don't mean the, the, the literature, I mean the actual election, when it was clear the Democratic nominee was going to lose. Now, uh, I, I hate to even use the comparison because Walter Mondale is a decent and honorable man, <laughs> but it was clear that he was going to lose that election. And the difference in that year, I think, is that Democrats, you know, they weren't so much running away. They just they just weren't actively supporting him because they knew that he was going to, to lose and lose big. And this year, there's a real dilemma for the Republicans. Are they going to go out there and actively support Donald Trump, potentially lose uh, their own? Is he going to take the House down? Is I mean, literally, will the Democrats retake the House? No one expects that. I believe it can happen if Donald Trump is the nominee. Will they lose the Senate? Uh, all those things are are still up in the air, and they just haven't seen the data yet. I suspect Gerald is exactly right, though. And once they start to see that data, they will ru- they will run away from him. Other people will do it because it is the honorable and right thing to do. So the senator from Nebraska is already out there, very clearly right, saying right, he cannot so. support mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Um, I think, you know, uh, uh, Senator Graham from South Carolina has made it very clear that, that the, it's a disaster for the party. I do think you're going to start to hear more of that uh, once this becomes a national election and it's no longer, you know, when his nomination is already sewn up. Well, I have right. some round-robin questions to ask you. But first, let me uh, remind people um, who you are. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me, Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor at UMass Boston, Peter Ubertasio, Associate Professor at Stonehill College, Shannon Jenkins, Associate Professor at UMass Dartmouth, and Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor at Central Connecticut State University. So, round robin first, Elizabeth Warren, hurt or not by saying nothing and not weighing in on the Democratic side. Aaron? Uh, uh, not not yeah. hurt. Um, you know, some folks are angry at her, don't get me wrong, but as this develops over time, she was very smart to do the wink nod to Bernie um, and, you know, say it, tacitly endorse his economic policy and the challenge he's mounting to Hillary Clinton, not showing up when all the female senators were. But moving forward, I, I, I foresee a major role for her at the convention, and she showed in 2014 she is willing to go out there and campaign and campaign very hard for down-ballot races, gubernatorial, Senate, House. So she, the, the party will, whoever gets her eventually will be so happy to put her forward. And if Bernie wins or Hillary wins, having Elizabeth Warren up there making the claim to the Democratic Party come home. She is an actual uniter of the Democratic right, right. Party. Yeah, All right, Shannon, right. does that mean that she would uh, do it if, if the candidate is Hillary Clinton? Sure. I think part of the reason why Warren didn't endorse is because she didn't want to alienate either base of support for the candidates. I mean, I'm in that demographic, older white females of a certain age, Mm African-American females, right? 
those are those are also Warren voters. And so she didn't want to alienate them. So sort of she was smart, as Aaron said, to straddle the fence, to have her cake and eat it, too. Um, and then I think I agree that in the convention she can come in and help. I'll go out on a limb here and I'll say I don't think it's Bernie or Hillary. I think Hillary's pretty much close right now and pretty much has it. Um, and so I think that allows Elizabeth Warren to come in and to bring the Sanders folk back into the fold. And that's going to be her role, I think, come convention time. Gerald, do you worry that Bernie wouldn't get on board or do you expect him to? I have, I have no doubt that Bernie will get on board. He's been fairly clear along the way. But the the, the, the reason why she hasn't endorsed is because, as as our my colleagues have said, it would not have made any sense for her. But it's also important to note that while she is sympathetic with uh, Senator Sanders' agenda and, and even his uh, uh, policy suggestions, she is not a party crasher. Hmm. Uh, she is someone who actually wants to advance the Democratic Party. She would never have endorsed him. The only person who hasn't ever had a chance for her endorsement is Hillary Clinton. And obviously there's no need to do that. And so, in fact, she will step in when the when it is mathematically settled and she will bring those folks that really are upset and they were rarely wanted Bernie. She'll bring them back. Uh, I'm going to mention the email probe that's risen again in case someone's listening to this conversation and saying, you're not mentioning that deliberately. <laughs> no, I am. I know um, about it. <laughs> I just am unclear about whether or not it has any weight, um, Peter. Uh, well, first of all, back uh, uh, to, to Warren, I just think it's it's worth pointing out that the shrewdest politician of this cycle has is a professor from Massachusetts. Just well, think well, that's well. worth mentioning. <laughs> there you go. Um, that's true. Good point. Very and good point. Uh, uh, I have no idea how. I mean, the, the, it, 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 at some point, it doesn't really matter. Be, uh, <laughs> it sounds like Hillary Clinton <laughs> because uh, whether if the thing folds and goes away and there's nothing there, I actually think that there's there's not as much there as some on the right would like. Uh, to see uh, Republicans, uh, conservatives, anti-Clinton people, it, it doesn't matter how this thing ends. They're going to use it no matter what to suggest that you can't trust her, that she tries mm. to skirt the, the rules, right? I mean, we've been hearing that about Hillary Clinton for years. This is, in their minds, just another bit of, of evidence, even though I think the evidence seems to be lacking. But it's an ongoing probe, and you can't easily no. dismiss that, particularly in a year where all of the rules seem to be thrown out the window. And, and so, you know, I do think it, it, there's the potential to damage her among, you know, independent voters who are truly undecided. And Gerald's thinking there are very few undecided voters. That's, that's true. That's true. Um, uh, but I, I ultimately don't think that that it's going to move a whole lot of people. Um, let me bring up something that I've been following for quite some time, and I'm really interested in, and, and nobody yet can say from a data perspective, what is the impact? And that is the impact of these voter ID laws. In many of the states that we've just come out of from the SEC, so-called SEC conference, the southern states, a lot of those uh, laws were changed by Republican-led legislatures. I'm not being pejorative. Whoever's listening, this is exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> And now we're going into some other states um, where it's really confusing. North Carolina has been in court, in and out. Michigan, in and out around these laws. What is the impact of uh, uh, really diminishing the vote? Because the, the little data that they do have already suggests that it's depressed the vote, Aaron. Mm-hmm. And, and there's new research out. Um, Zoltan Hajnal, I might be pronouncing his last name wrong, is at UCSD. And he's published um, really def- definitive, defining work in the field. We know in political science what's driving um, restrictive voter access legislation. Myself and Keith Bentel have published that work. But what uh, Zoltan and his team does is incredibly imp- – they bring it down to the individual level.
level, and they show where this stuff passes, it is depleting turnout amongst minorities. It's not um, a debate. It's not, I think, I feel that you talk about data, that's what the data is showing. And what in this cycle, it's going to have even more of an impact because it's the first time. You know, it's it's confusing to register to vote and stay registered anyway. But now there's been changes to the law. There's been all these court cases. You know, so if you're an average voter who's not a political animal, it's incredibly confusing. And so we know in states that pass this stuff, it's going to disproportionately affect Democratic voters. And those voters are disproportionately of color. That's what's going to happen. And then on the other side, you've got Trump bringing in a lot of new people. He, his mm-hmm. his number, it is undeniably true that turnout is higher. So, you know, when you counterbalance the, those two on a scale, um, many of us worry about whether true preferences of the electorate will be reflected at the ballot box. And I just leave folks with this. In Texas, a student was turned away. You all know this um, for not having the right uh, ID. But if she had had a gun ID, she could have voted because you can use your gun ID in Texas, but not your student ID. So moving on, I just want to do a round robin with each of you and uh, tell us what we should be paying attention to as we head into um, uh, some other uh, uh, primaries and and look and see what happens uh, on both sides, I guess, but particularly on the Trump side. Um, if uh, folks are going to be not saying anything else, if, if, if Mitt is the last one to say something publicly about uh, Donald Trump. So, Gerald, let me start with you. So what should we paying, be paying attention to in these next few weeks, which seem chock full of primaries and caucuses? Uh, the most interesting thing that I'm hearing uh, in in you know, the media and by others is the uh, difference between uh, open and closed primaries going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, will he obviously we, we know that uh, Cruz was able to win uh, closed primaries. There's a sense that he will be a better candidate in closed primaries. And that makes perfect sense, because if Trump is bringing in others, uh, independents or even Democrats, uh, they're not that's not the crowd that's going to be as able to uh, to vote in them. So I think that it'll be interesting to see if that theory is right. Will his support diminish in closed primaries. It's much it's not entirely different than the other side where Hillary Clinton has a huge advantage mm-hmm. in a closed primary. Hillary Clinton benefits when it's Democrats at the polls just as much as or more probably than uh, non-Trump candidates or Cruz will benefit from uh, only Republicans. Okay. I'm going to have to make yours short. I'm going to ask you to make yours shorter, but Shannon, what should we be looking for? Uh I'll take the other side of the aisle, the Democratic side of the aisle, and I think the Democrats have to be concerned that turnout is down in the primary. Um, Sanders is supposedly generating this whole movement that's bringing people in. It's not. Um, And to the extent there are restrictive voter registration laws, there are other things that may suppress Democratic turnout. Um, This is a puzzle that the Democrats need to think about and fix come November. All right. Peter? I have a laser-like focus on the delegate count, uh, mm-hmm. particularly on the Republican side. We're moving into uh, winner-take-all uh, primaries, and so it no longer matters if you come in a close second. You you have to win, and if Rubio can win in Florida, if Kasich can win in Ohio, then there is a, a an excellent chance that you end up with uh, uh, a, a person who can't get a majority of the delegates. If they lose, however, to Trump, uh, then I think by by you know March sixteenth. Uh, this is over. Wow. 
Aaron. Uh, two things. One, I think uh, an open question as to, to the turnout points two of my colleagues made. Um, is this a realignment of the Republican Party? Is the Republican Party going to look fundamentally different in terms of who their base is moving forward? And secondly, I think it's still an open question whether the Bernie fo- folks, if it is Hillary, actually coalesce around her. They're not going to go vote for Trump, that's for sure. But whether they choose to stay home, given a lot of the vitriol that is going on, not between Bernie and Hillary so much, but certainly amongst their supporters, I think that's an open question that all feeds back into that turnout loop. All right. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You have just heard from the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien, chair and associate professor of political science at UMass Boston. Peter Ubertacio, associate professor of political science and the director of the Martin Institute for Law and Society at Stonehill College. Shannon Jenkins is the chair and associate professor of political science at UMass Dartmouth. And on the phone today, Gerald Duquette, associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Well, millions of Americans are sold on Bernie Sanders, but one Bernie Sanders doll is sold out. That story next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.